0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Been doing it every week for almost seven years now. For the last 10 months we've been virtual. Almost 11 months now, fellas. Been virtual coming to you via Zoom. One upside is we get the whole crew in here most weeks. Kate Massey hosting with all my colleagues and friends, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Afternoon, fellas. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Most years we'd be packing bags, flying to Super Bowl City tomorrow. Not doing that this year, sadly. But we are still going to do a version of the Super Bowl show. We've lined up a number of interviews to chat with some folks from around the league. Um, But we're going to do the first quarter on COVID. This has been our tradition for the last seven months. It's the context of our lives is the context of our sports lives as well. And there's a lot to make sense of. So gentlemen, as always, I'm interested in the world of coronavirus. What has caught your eye?
3: Well, I'm going to jump in and just announce to the show that I got my first vaccine.
2: Hey! hey.
3: Yeah, buddy! Yeah. So, so how,
2: how did that come to be?
3: Um, well, uh, it came to be because I work with CHOP, Um in uh, doing research with the Century for Injury Prevention. And I don't actually have to be in the building very often, but every now and then I do. I got put on a list and they have plenty of uh, openings. And actually, uh, so I finally got in and just, you know, got my first shot and I have an appointment for the second one coming up. I had a choice between Pfizer and Moderna. I, I chose You had a the choice? One. Not only did yeah, you get
2: the thing, but you had a yeah, choice? I had a choice. Um,
3: and I chose the Pfizer only because the location where they were administering it was easier to get to. <laughs>
4: wow. So what should we take away, Adi? Forget you individually, that in some sense, there's plenty of slots. You have choices. So what does this tell us about just kind of the way the distribution is going? Because I'm sitting here, you know, we both live in Montgomery County. I'm sitting here. The last data point I've read, there's 250,000 people in Group 1A. They're administering about 5,000 a week. I can do math real well. That implies to me, I know it's not going to stay the same because the Johnson & Johnson's coming out, all et cetera, et cetera. But I I'm like 50 weeks away from Group 1B. So what should we read about all of this? I
3: think, think I mean, I can tell you a couple of things. We're sitting on vaccine that could be in people's arms. And we're doing that because of the way that we've rolled it out. Um, I can tell you just as as an aside, um, I, I know this is true. A lot of the vaccine centers, vaccination centers, are opening up at the end of the day to whoever is around. Um, and if you know where these things are, I mean, I'm not necessarily advertising, but I can tell you that this is definitely happening. Um, and, and I don't know when the end well, of the day usually, is,
2: that's usually right. public information. I mean, it's not, that's not a, that's not a sensitive thing. I mean, lots no, of- it's
3: not, but it's actually a good idea because you don't want to be wasting vaccines that once they get defrosted, um, and they've been right. out for the day, they, they can't go right. back.
5: But uh, um, is there like an organized way of distributing? Like, is there like an actual, like. Organized no. wait list or lineup yeah. or is it just a bunch of people mowing around in the parking lot hoping somebody comes out with them in a backpack? So I can tell you
3: in, that in, at at Chop um they have been days where at the end of the day they've been walking around the hospital looking for people to vaccinate.
5: Okay. So this do, um, this does this does sound like yeah. American healthcare system in general, yep. based on random chance and who you know.
3: But the thing is, if you're going to be kind of precise about it, so this is a very small amount, so what you might call overages is a small quantity, then you have to be very, very slow about who you give it out to so that you really have a very slow, precise. Um, uh, process which in most situations is a good thing but in this situation it's actually a very stupid thing because it just slows the whole delivery uh, process down and it's I think that we should be moving three or four times as fast and not be and not sure. I don't even think we have the capability, though. So it's not exactly as if I mean, this had to have been handed either at the at the state level completely or the federal level and just draft uh, people to poke it in people's arms, use arenas and then just get it going. And it's just going really slow. I, f- I
2: feel bad for you guys. Well, I, <laughs> let me just say we, we need to we need to be finding success stories and and proselytizing their methods, because one if you want to say silver lining to the way this thing is being unrolled is that you had the opportunity to watch it. What, what works in different areas. I mean, people are trying a zillion different things. Some are working really well. Some are not working at all. There ought to be some learning and some transfer across these geographies. And so we should, at least let's keep, let's keep this in mind. We should keep out an eye for success stories.
4: Yeah. I wanted to ask you out again about an apples to apples comparison that isn't, hasn't yet exactly been made, but I'm hearing about. So everybody knows that Johnson and Johnson came out, People hear the number 72% effective in the U.S., but 85% against severe disease and 100% against death and hospitalization. Yeah, Yeah, what I've also heard, though, is had you only taken, let's take Pfizer, which you just said you got, had you only taken one shot of Pfizer, I'm hearing that's about 80% effective. So is there any reason not to believe that if all of a sudden someone took two Johnson & Johnson shots – Maybe it'll be like maybe we shouldn't be comparing seventy two percent with one shot to ninety five percent with two shots. Isn't that a legitimate apples to apples comparison? And couldn't somebody get two shots of the Johnson and Johnson potentially?
5: Did you know, they investigate side effects of that particular regime? Did they test that regime? They—that's ha- they a good tested question. Anything so they they've done, what they've done, right? <laughs> you know.
4: They haven't
3: tested whether two so shots they- of that. Yeah. So, so one, of the, one of the big articles that came out this week by Virologist was essentially arguing that the program that Pfizer and Moderna did was the one they did. And that offers almost no information on anything else that they might have done counterfactually. And so the argument was they, uh, that, and we're not, we're not actually collecting data on this, that if you let someone go five, six weeks after their first shot, They probably have enough um, antibodies in them to to fend it off. And maybe it's not 95, but it, it might be as close to 90 and 95. We just don't know the answer. So that's, that's something that there's a lot of questions that we don't know the answer to because the, the trial was had to be performed in a way, and that way is the one we know, and we know almost nothing else about a variant. And
4: Shana relates to your question, too. I don't think they know right now if they were to give, matter of fact, they're just doing those trials now, giving two Johnson & Johnson shots, seeing both the side effects, and maybe you know, in four, five, six weeks, we're going to get the news that, oh, by the way, two Johnson & Johnson shots could get you to 90-plus percent, too.
2: But I really like the, the the emphasis Adi's placing on. We made that trade off back in the trial phase, and we have to recognize now that we we don't have as much information as we'd like because we were rushing to get like the minimum understanding necessary to push That's things right. forward. And, and and one of the trade offs is we just don't we can't answer some of these questions, guys. I thought you were going to go a little bit different direction with that, but you were just well, on Eric is and that there was a there was a piece by David Leonard in the Times a day or two ago where he says don't miss the objective here the objective is to m- reduce deaths reduce hospitalizations it's not to keep people from getting this thing if right. we can turn it into the flu then we don't care as long as people aren't dying and the, there's a couple of implications here one implication is don't worry so much about johnson johnson being 60 or 70 percent because it's a hundred percent or as close as you can get on reducing mortality and if that's that's what we really care about then we should be happy with 60 and in fact I don't remember if he took it this next step or not, but that's one of the arguments for doing the one dose versions of the Pfizer and Moderna because you get so much protection off of the one That if we just stop there and let's okay, at least these people aren't going to die now, and then use the second doses. Let
4: me just ask us, I don't call it a statistics question, but is there any chance that there could be like a, a reversal, like the Johnson and Johnson could be better in preventing death, but the Pfizer and Moderna are better in preventing severe disease? Is there any chance that that's possible?
3: I would probably I mean, listen, who who knows? almost anything is possible, anyone who has to put positive probability on just about anything. But I would say that's highly unlikely that, that, that you're going to get a reversal given the numbers. Um, I think the real, the real issue is um, how ultimately effective these are going to be on other variants. Um, So Pfizer has seen quite I mean, there's a speculation that they might not work as well, but they claim that it might not work as well, but it was going to work enough. So maybe not 95 percent, no disease, but but certainly 95 to 100 percent, no death or no hospitalization on the newer variants, particularly the more virulent one like coming out of South Africa, at least potentially more virulent. I shouldn't say that we know for sure about any of these things.
5: I mean, why are we talking about double dosing the Johnson and Johnson's vaccine? I mean, from a public policy perspective, as we've been talking about, the, the key is to try and get this thing in as many people as possible. So, I mean, you know, I, I would just I, I guess you're trading off something going from like 60 some percent effective to 90 percent effective. You know, but you're using twice as many vaccines to do that. Yep. Right. I mean, wouldn't you want I, I mean, I think we might prefer 60 percent effective, but giving it out to twice as many people. I think, than I think this sh- other kind of like let's now let's now take the Johnson Johnson. The one great thing about the Johnson Johnson, which is is only one dose and turn it into Moderna and Pfizer. Well, we need multiple doses.
4: I think the only question is and I think I agree with your point. I think the only question becomes, you know, we don't know exactly what the long run effects of covid are and so if it turns out that there's long run effects then the difference between 60 70% and 90% while you're you're still alive there could be very long run health effects that You know, you might wish you were at the 90, 95 percent and the kind of the level of virus within you was much lower. But I agree if the objective function is purely deaths and severe hospitalizations. Matter of fact, you could argue, Shane, your point, which is you should go the opposite direction. We got to figure out how to turn Moderna and Pfizer into Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, no, I mean,
5: you know, I mean, I think they may work already. The most, the, the number one thing is, I think one of the main things to determine whether or not you get COVID and the long term effects of it is not just that whether or not you're individually protected, but if we can get the rates down in society by immunizing people as quickly as possible, that's going to have a protective effect as well. So it's not even clear on an individual level whether I'd prefer the 60% twice as fast, let's call it, versus the 90%. Half is fast.
4: I wanted to tie, actually, our two topics of, you know, COVID to the actual Super Bowl this week, and I wanted to get your guys' reaction to something that caught my eye. And I'm just thinking, statistically, um, there could be potentially a lot of players missing the game. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you guys saw, but for someone to play in the game, they have to test negative seven days in a row. Now, twice, twice per day for seven days in a row they're tested. Now, I'm starting to think 14 tests, with the false positive rate that could exist.
3: Half a percent.
4: Yep. (laughs) yep. So I'm starting to do the math on, you know, we know how to compute the probability of one false positive is at least one false positive is one minus the probability of no false positives. You start doing the math and you start to say, you know, without, with a hundred plus players, there could be an expectation of a few players getting a false positive test. Now, of course Mm -hmm. they have a way to kind of get around that, but you know, it just made me think, I'm like, Really? Fourteen consecutive Dude. tests you need to be able to play in this game, and if not, then you have to have five days. Like, suppose someone has one now, you're out of the game. You're out of the game.
3: I, I think they probably have a, a double. I think that they do is they retest it, yeah, and, and then yeah. if it's a, if, they, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a match, then you're good, and if it's not a match, they do it again until they until they have a, a majority rule. That that, that should be. really There's lower the false party. There's a lot of it.
5: weird behavior going on with the Super Bowl, <laughs> like that that story about the barber that was you know, they brought the barber into the facility and like, that was a contact that may have been COVID positive. And now they've, there's a couple of players on the chiefs, not prominent players, but a couple of players on the chiefs that are kind of in the COVID protocol because they, they got the haircut.
2: uh, yeah oh my god but you couldn't wait <laughs> you couldn't wait to get a haircut you couldn't wait that's remarkable. <laughs> to get a haircut let me
3: i, I wanted to pose for to you guys uh to back to the the vaccine uh the double dose almost like a trolley problem for the vaccine uh, because of the way we've rolled it out and there and there's all these almost tears and i got a kind of early access if you will um there's there's a lot of couples who one got early access and the other didn't and is doesn't and and is like the rest of you like we'll have no idea when it's coming if you if you would you advocate having the first shot go to the one who got on the queue? Because the second shot, once you, once you got the first one, the second shot comes automatically. You just show up and get it and send the
2: other couple to get the second oh, shot. Oh, my goodness gracious. I had what a great question because this happens <laughs> a lot, right? And, and there's Audi, a lot Audi's of people. I just say something some people may not realize that in many situations, it's not that tight bureaucratically in these shot centers. And in fact, sometimes strategically not that tight. And so what Adi suggesting is eminently doable in many sites. What do you think? What do you think about this? I, I mean, there. so I guess I don't understand really kind of the
5: administration. Like, there's not an ID check, I guess, nope. we're talking about. Nope. You but, just have but, to come. You need the card but, you got but, in the but, first but time. But there is, you do get documentation that you've been vaccinated, right? Yep. I'll show you. But do you just fill that out yourself? Okay. So that card, yep. by the way... So if I wanted to kind of re-enter society and I didn't give, give much about other people, I, what I really need is that card. I don't even need the vaccine. Right?
3: Well, here in the U.S., we're not going to do and much with that card. And I can
5: just pull it out myself? Well, the
3: card they only give you, with the, 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 it comes from the CDC, and you get the card when you get vaccinated. So that's how right. I got it. Could you forge it? I'm sure you can. Whatever. But you could just that's not the issue.
5: You could send anybody you wanted in your
3: place, and they'll just yeah, fill out the and card it, themselves. And, and so once I got the card for the first round, I can go back for the
5: second round with just the card. I can give the card to anybody. Or just fill out the card for the second round, not and save yourself. No, no, no but it's not about that. I'm trying to get another shot right. in someone's arm, right? I know, I know. No. I just I'm I'm a little surprised <laughs> that there's not even that level
2: No, Shane, but this isn't surprised. Is, this is one of this is one of the this is partly, this is one of the pieces of news we're reporting. But I think it's a really interesting It is. You know, family family policy. Uh,
4: and I I want to make an amendment to your idea. Mm-hmm. Then when it's my turn, Either I have you go first or if I have to go first because I have to identify myself, then I go first and I give – so you get shots one and four and I get shots two
3: and three. Well, Right. The problem with that, and this is a potential bureaucratic, is that you might have to identify yourself for the first time. The second no, no, time I goes – No, I said – I said I'm
4: going to – let's say you and I were a couple. Yeah. You're going to get the first shot. You got your card. You give me shot number two. Mm-hmm. I identify myself. I get shot number three and then give you shot number four. Right. So I get two and three and you get one and yeah, four, one and four. And a it, of two Eric, shots, but actually, we're both protected in the meantime.
3: That's right. I think
2: there are plenty of sites where even on the first shot, the ID requirement is sufficient, uh, f- sufficiently weak that you could pull it off. So I, it's a nice elaboration. Now, I want to pose one, I think, substantive complication. What about down the road when Pfizer comes up with a permutation that's supposed to address the South African variant or whatever variant might be relevant? And now they want to go back and give that a third shot to you if you got the first two to address that. And now you've screwed everything up and the record keeping isn't right. And there, and there are things you can do. They, they, some places are asking you to register and be tracked. And so you would throw all of that out the window if you start doing these things. And we don't know for a fact that that's going to happen, but it might happen.
3: I don't know. It's a bird in the hand, right? Isn't that the argument, essentially? Well, I mean, that's
2: Leonard's it's, argument. That's definitely Leonard's argument. It's really, really interesting. But this is All actually right, something
3: looked, that, is, that is front and center for actually a lot of people who haven't considered it, but they potentially should because of the way it's rolled out. Interesting.
2: All right. We're talking COVID-19 here in the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is our special Super Bowl Sunday show. We have a number of interviews coming up in the rest of the show, but we're just having a little first quarter coronavirus discussion. Guys, what else in the world of COVID-19? I know, Adi, you were pointing to some some controversies around ivermectin. This is on the treatment side of things. What's going on with ivermectin? Yeah, Same so ivermectin,
3: ivermectin is an anti-parasitical drug. How it works or what it does, I have no real idea. Um, but it's uh, a very important uh, drug. I think it, it was uh, the technology behind it. It was uh, behind a Nobel Prize in 2015 in medicine, um, but you say you say very important, not very important for COVID, not very important coding, for COVID, but for other. anti. But it's kind of it's sort of an antiviral. It it has it was one of the drugs that people thought of as having possible um, treatment. Uh, Particularly early stage, to not 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 to save you late, but early. This is after it, you
4: already have COVID, just to be clear, and you now yes, get this as a treatment.
3: Right, it'll be given, but but it, but the hypothesis is that it has to be given very early. Which, by the way, was the same for the for the hydrochloroquine, and that and it got kind of caught up in the in the mess with that. And one of the things that make these things very messy is that we as a our standard of of of, of evidence is the random contr- placebo controlled trial. And when you're dealing with populations where you're getting what we call ambulatory care, um, where people are out and about and walking, they're not hospitalized, for a disease that that is fatal, particularly among uh, the populations who might be studied, certainly less than 1%, probably closer to half of a percent, the number of people you need to treat to have a A scientifically or statistically certain or significant, highly significant, certain conclusion is in the thousands. So a drug like ivermectin has not been studied to the highest academic standards that we would like to see in the United States. But in the last four or five months, there have been a series of publications in what i might call i don't know whether this is uh, politically incorrect second world countries i mean you know south america um eastern europe and they're and they've been producing these studies which show that ivermectin seems to be actually a quite an effective drug at keeping you from getting very sick or, so or real hospitalized. Real quickly, certainly
2: Adi, these are the studies you're referring to now are in fact Random controlled experiments. They are random they controlled, have, e- but they they're just not
5: have a sample size large enough where we can actually say something conclusive.
3: They they have a hundred. They have two hundred. Each mm-hmm. study by itself isn't particularly persuasive, and because they're not done in you know major American or European medical centers, there's a lot of sort of mistrust at what they're actually doing. Many of them are not. Um, some of them are blinded. Almost all of them are not placebo controlled because outside of America, most countries are giving COVID patients immediately something. We give nothing. We give Zippo nothing until you are at, at, in the ER. And then maybe they give you some steroids or, r- okay, hold on, hold on. you know.
2: why, why is that?
3: Well, this is a, this is a this is definitely part of our philosophy of science. Unless you can prove it, we don't prescribe it.
2: Okay, so we I think early on, like when when hospitals in Italy or since we're talking about the U.S., New York were deluged, people were probably trying some things just out of desperation, right? But that was an exception. You're saying in general, the protocol is not to prescribe if we don't have a well-established procedure. Well,
3: what happened was is a lot of a lot of that stuff was doing anecdotally and people were just prescribing and trying and that just doesn't accumulate any information. You you yeah. have to recognize that that kind of a approach is just those generate hypotheses for then to be further studied, but it just doesn't doesn't do much. But we don't really do anything at all. I mean, there's a whole suite of things that People could try vitamin D in high doses is one very obvious one. Um, Ivermectin, even hydrochloroquine is still being prescribed around the world, if not in the United States. Um, there are other drugs, I, I wish I could rattle them off, but, um, that, that other countries are trying. Are they doing them stupidly? Maybe they are. I have no idea. But ivermectin seems to be coming up as a something that we should be considering. In fact, NIH recently kind of pulled back. They used to say, don't do it. And now they're saying, well, leave it up to the physician to decide what they want to do.
4: Why don't, Adi, why don't, given the, obviously, the seriousness of the new strains, uh, the number of the predictions on the number of deaths, et cetera, wouldn't another possible strategy be a if it do no harm strategy, use it. Like for example, we may not know that ivermectin works, but right. enough people have taken it at this point that if there were severe side effects, you probably would see it by now.
5: Well, so only well, I mean, the, the study of the side effects is kind of similarly underpowdered to the side study of the main effect, right? I mean, yes, no, I mean, no, it, no, it no, no. Pretty... No,
4: no, because let's imagine you just look at the treatment group. Let's say there is no control group. I agree. It's 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 low power, but I'm not comparing it at this point to a control group. I just know I've given it away 200 times and there's been zero potential severe side effects from it. I'm not comparing it to a group of people. You know, there, there is no side effects of people that got nothing. So I'm saying I, what's the loss function that wouldn't argue that trying new things, if they if there's some evidence or at least significant evidence that they do no harm but could potentially help, why not
5: prescribe it? Well, I mean, again, I I guess I don't know the studies. I mean, again, it sounds like we're looking at sort of like a a disorganized collection of studies where there wasn't real. I mean, how do you it's evaluating whether or not there have been serious side effects in those studies. Well, well, the side
3: no, this. No, no. The side effects are well known because it's a it's a drug that's been used all over the world. It's a great point. I it's, see. So John, it, it's been for it's, it was, it's used it for parasites. You know.
5: Used for parasites, so there. yeah, per-
3: yeah. It's I mean it's it's a just a I it's see. well okay. well well known profile, and I would guess that there probably are some side effects. Um, mm-hmm. they can't be that massive, otherwise, why you drug wouldn't work as so good as it does. I mean, this I think I always pose this as a really important question to all of us. Um, we're all roughly in the same age bracket. Um, if we were to get COVID, and you were ha- you were, what would you do? And and I do think that we, are, we aren't doing a good job in this country. And just to move away from uh, to ivermectin, but to the monoclonal antibodies, which have been well studied vigorously in placebo-controlled here in the United States, and they do seem to have or at least the data shows that they should have a very good effect on uh, on severe um, illness and mortality. We are not giving it. And the problem is, is that you've got to get it ambulatory. So it has to happen at your primary care. And because of the infusion it requires two hours and a pharmacist and it's all at the hospital right now and that's just not where it should be and, and the good news on this front is i just heard from one of my friends who is an ent here in Narbirth and he told me that mainline health um has started a uh infusion center um oh, wow. for for so if you do get sick with covid I, my problem is you got to convince your primary care to give you a script because but the primary that, care is not going to know to do so
2: I was about. Well, maybe to
3: ask we can just you,
5: loiter in the parking lot, like we're going to be loitering for our vaccines <laughs> yeah.
2: when they're unloading the truck. Just yeah, ask yeah, you to yeah do just, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do that because there's a in there's a
3: big old bill for that monoclonal, and you want someone to pay for it. Let me tell you that.
2: But, Adi, there's a there is a question that was exactly where I was going. How how does one pursue this? So you asked the question if we got it, mm-hmm. what we want. So we've been talking about these kinds of treatments from the beginning, and so we might very well want something one of these varieties or multiple varieties. If that were the case, how would we make that happen? Like what, what levers do people need to pull? There's in general, in the U S there's a lot of self-advocacy that's needed in the healthcare system. And it's never been more evident than around the COVID-19 world. And especially around the vaccinations. I mean, if you're sitting around waiting for your doctor to call you and tell you it's your turn to get the vaccination, you're going to be waiting a <laughs> long time, a real long time. So if you if you're, if, how would one advocate for, monoclonal antibodies or I- iver ivermectin how-, how does that even happen
3: i, I think the place has to do with it with is an email or phone call to your physician before you get you before you turn positive and um i i'm i'm worried about it not because so much i guess i mean i have three friends who, who who've just been through covid and two of them are still feeling illness even though they're all better um, it's not something you want. I don't want it. <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody wants it. And I think, I think, I think even mortality is a small, small event. If there is something out there that you could do to prevent your, yourself from getting badly ill, I would take ivermectin. I'm not. Sure. I have to do a little bit of researching before I commit to that. Obviously, but it sounds promising, and I don't think its 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 a profile of side effects is bad. Um, I would love to get the monoclonal antibodies. I don't think I'm old enough to be considered in the in the oh. pool of people to get it. Um, okay. But if I were 65, for sure, um, I would talk to my primary care physician and say, if I get I want to just line this up, you're giving me a script to run down to wherever I need to go get it as soon as if I become positive, I would do that early before you get sick. I would make that call. But we're not old enough quite yet. But I think they're going to drop that or lower that that uh, that uh, standard.
2: Because you've reported that there are, there's stocks of, of this stuff laying around oh, everywhere. Yes, because a lot I'm of folks, using. that was one of the few things people could do to contribute. If you got it was, OK, mm-hmm. now I can contribute my my plasma and now it's not being used all right fellas well all very interesting we um have done another quarter here on COVID-19 always a lot to talk about we've got some sports to talk about next we're gonna roll into the more Super Bowl themed aspect of our show in the next three quarters come back you're listening to Wharton Moneyball
4: on business radio
2: welcome back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball rolling into the second quarter now We don't have our buddy Shane Jensen. He's teaching. He's going to roll in here in a minute. But we do want to kick off our version of the Super Bowl show this year. The last few years, or at least three out of the last four, something like that, we've been able to go down and do a show from Radio Row. It's been one of the highlights of the year for us. Last year we were in Miami. We had great plans to be in Tampa Bay. This time last year we were fantasizing, Eric was anyway, that the Bucks might be the first hometown team for the Super Bowl, and it happened, but we're not making the trip, sadly. But we still want to do some talking about the Super Bowl, so we've lined up a handful of folks that we thought you guys would be interested to hear from, and we are always interested to hear from. Number one, Michael Lopez. Welcome back to the show, Michael Lopez. He is the Director of Data and Analytics at the National Football League. He is also an adjunct stats at Skidmore, because he was a full-time stats at Skidmore before the NFL stole him. Michael, good to see you.
6: Hey Eric, Adi, thanks so
2: much for having me on. Yeah. Absolutely. What is Super Bowl week like for you? Is it, How different is it than your normal week, if at all?
6: Uh, well, I mean, usually the last couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, this year, I have spent an inordinate amount of time reading big data papers mm-hmm. and um, sitting in my basement. So um, <laughs> different types of stimulation uh, and making the best of, of the world we live in.
3: Well, you don't have a team of TAs to
6: grade them, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> well, we,
2: we do use the teams
6: to uh, to help us with the big data bowl entries, but we like to also keep an eye on them as well.
2: So Michael's referring to the competition that started once he arrived in the NFL. I'm sure you had a lot to do with it, Michael, but this kind of data hackathon thing with next generation stats, you guys have made some massive contributions to the community in the last couple of years, and everyone's excited. I mean, for example, last, was it last weekend that they used the running back stats in the in the conference championship game? That this, like, you know, from competition to national television, it must be neat for you to see.
6: It was. You know, we had seen it earlier in the year, and it was it was kind of fun. But then to have it pop up in the in the middle of one of our biggest games of the year was was definitely a thrill.
2: Mm-hmm. Any early reactions to the entries you have this year? You have two hundred. The the focus is pass defense. And you guys do this interesting thing where you just kind of open it up and you say, here's some data. Tell us what you make of it. It's, it's, it's very different from some of the very narrowly focused competitions that others do.
6: Right. And it makes it it's exciting just to see all of the different ideas. Uh, and, and a lot of people are, are thinking about the same types of questions the same way. How does a defender prevent targets? How does a defender close on the ball once the ball's in the air? How does a defender catch up to a, a wide receiver that has the ball? It's just interesting that, you know, you put the, these, these types of questions and this, the data in the hands of so many talented people, you get a lot of different answers and people go about sort of the same way, but, but also thinking uniquely. You know, from our perspective, it's, it's exciting to think about what tracking data can answer. Uh, and, and from my perspective, selfishly, they're really interesting to read, right? I mean, you're getting new ideas, new algorithms, uh, you get to sort of compare one paper to the next, and just knowing that that people put in all this time is is really humbling. Um, and, and for me, it's you know I did the easy part, right? You know we're sitting here showing the data, and, <laughs> right. and it's it's up to the teams and, and and sort of the the people on the on the staffs to take the next step with it.
2: It's it's such a good idea these competitions. We do one each year for the People Analytics Conference here at Wharton, um, and we've got one we're about to kick off for teach, with Teach for America data. And every year we're blown away by the fact that some teams are going to come up with stuff we never could have come up with ourselves. These are student teams around the world, and they're going to come up with ideas that we faculty never would have come up with. And even more so when you've got some content as compelling as the NFL data. Okay, so look, we, we, we'll have plenty of chances to talk about the, the data bowl. Um, when you pull yourself out of the basement, Michael, and you look around and you think about Tampa Bay playing Kansas City, how do you as an analyst, how do you in your position at the NFL think about the game? And what will you be looking at? What are you, what are you most looking forward to, to seeing on Sunday?
6: Yeah, I think it starts with the quarterback play. You know, we we do a lot of tracking some of the some of the trends that, that the way teams are constructing their rosters. And uh, for us, it is uh, two of the, the top quarterbacks in the game, and, and it starts and ends with them. And uh, you know, we're we're excited. I, I'm I'm selfish, right? I just want I want a competitive game, and uh, I don't particularly have a, any any Stuck in this race. So for us, it's let's get a competitive game. Let's have the players healthy and, and we'll see what happens.
2: Okay. So hold on. I got to ask, I mean, did, did you really have to leave your allegiances at the door when you walked into the Manhattan offices or do you still admit some rooting interest, maybe not in this game, but in general, I'm just curious life is Michael Lopez. Are you allowed to have a, a team you pull for?
6: I think a lot of people have teams. It's we're in football ops though. And so as, as the people that help put on the game and evaluate the rules, you know, we, we get, one of the weird things is, and, and this is something I wasn't really uh, expecting in academia, when you put together a report, if the the data itself shows that the games are good, it ends up making us look better, even though we really have nothing to do with what happens on the field. And so, from our perspective, I root for a good game because it ends up making our reports look good, um, okay. e- even though, of course, you know, I'm not I'm not really having anything to do with what goes on on Sunday. Right,
4: right. So, Michael, I want to ask you a question that relates to your point. Um, I completely agree that it's quarterback play is going to make a big deal. Um, how soon in the game can you tell whether – and I worry about this as the, the – uh, Bucks are my dog in this race, and uh, they have a 43-year-old quarterback. My, I have a two-part question, but they're related. How quickly can you tell whether Brady's were drawing from the good distribution or the bad distribution of the 43-year-old? And two, do you tend to see non-stationarity in games where, you know – Given the expected result, he's performing poorly early, but maybe well late. So that's kind of a two-part but related question.
6: You know, ultimately, we do a lot of predictions of game quality, and I'm—I I'm, think each of the years. This is my third full year at the league. You know, at some point, I'll, I'll get the motivation to try and predict what we consider a quality football game, and that could be, uh, you know, that you sum up all the changes in win probability. Um, it could be based on lead changes, things like that, and. The only really two predictors of a quality football, and, and when I say only two, like there are smaller predictors, but the two things we always come back to are the point spread and the the game total. And traditionally, when a game has a a, a close point spread, the closer it is to zero, and a higher game total, that is, those are the two biggest drivers of what we consider a competitive football game. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I can do all the preparation I want in terms of trying to think about like what are the trends for these teams and how will they match up. Um, ultimately, like I, most of that ends, ends up sort of fading out when we consider the, 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 the differences in team strength as perceived by betting markets, and then also the, the sort of relative quality of the offenses and defenses.
2: Michael, we're, we're seeing quarterbacks at two very different points in their career. At least we keep on saying Brady's near the end of his career. What do you think we have learned from analytics in the last few years about the, the career arc of quarterbacks and how it changes, how it's, how it's different now than it used to be?
6: Well, i think before i came to the league one of the big offseason changes was the rules to keep quarterbacks safer and you know from a, a last 10 20 year perspective um, a lot of the the sort of reality is that our, our game is driven by having healthy quarterbacks and um, it, it's i think if you look at our injury numbers those have those have netted out some some good last couple seasons in terms of the amount of games missed by quarterbacks so i think that that ultimately plays into it right if we can can make sure that the hits on quarterbacks are by the book and, and not sort of the ones that are most dangerous. We're going to have, you know, quarterbacks that are potentially able to play longer.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting topic injuries in general, and it's been a frontier for sports science and to some extent analytics. Do you, do you see the NFL making much progress on injuries in general beyond the quarterback position? Have you, and what's your hope that you might make substantive progress on that?
6: I think our we have a health and safety group that does a lot of that, and and we end up uh, collaborating with them on a, a decent amount of work, particularly when it comes to rule changes. I, I think I think when you know for, they first started working uh, maybe four or five years ago was was really when they started getting good injury data in terms of analyzing it and trying to think about you know way to ways to improve the game. You know it started with a kickoff and some of the rules that were made on the kickoff. It's also gone into having, you know, what helmets lead to to fewer concussions. They've done some work on what cleats, you know, mixed with what surfaces will lead to fewer Mm -hmm. lower limb injuries. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, though, the the sky's really the limit and the question, you know, we're really only constrained by time and data. You know, when we think about um, some of the questions that we would like to be able to answer, uh, you know, we want to be able to look in in four or five years and be able to think like, this we know is the best service for this type of player, for this type of player. um, And and maybe one day we'll be there.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you look back on, you say you've been there three years, but the, the progress just keeps on compiling. What do you think the biggest um, advances have been in analytics this past season? And, and as we wind things up here with you, we don't have as much time as we'd like. When you look forward to next season, kind of where do you think it's going?
6: I mean, uh, even just the sort of basic play-by-play analysis that's been out there for, for several years, um, the efficiency of the pass play and going forward and forth down, I mean, those are, those were two low hanging fruit that analysts have been sort of, you know, almost being a dead horse for a while. And, and now to see teams passing the ball on first down more often to see teams Mm -hmm. going forward on fourth down, you know, Mm -hmm. not just a couple of teams, but literally all teams, you know, if you look at sort of the, the team that was least aggressive on fourth down this year, you know, they were a typical team, you know, 10 years ago. And so it's across the bar teams are are sort of recognizing some of those inefficiencies and um, you know, what's next. Honestly, (laughs) if I had a really good answer, I'd probably want to go work for a team.
4: So, Michael, let me just ask you a quick question. A lot of people can say analytics is great, you know, in game three of the season. But let's see a team really use it in the Super Bowl. Let's imagine a scenario. Either team is down one point. They score a touchdown with 10 seconds left. And analytics says that they should go for two to win the game. Do you ever see a chance where that actually happens in the biggest of all moments?
6: Sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I... I think even you look at Andy Reid going forward on, on fourth and one with a backup quarterback um, against Cleveland. I mean, that's a, that's the type of scenario that no one would have ever envisioned um, maybe other than, you know, Bill Belichick and fourth and two against Indy. Like it, it's just sort of becoming a more common practice to see some of these surprise decisions. Uh, I, you know, I think ultimately you would really want that coach to, to know, you know, what is my win probability in overtime? What is my, you know, how comfortable am, am I with my two point play? I mean, ultimately they have, two point plays that they probably think are 75% probability, or maybe they called it already. And, you know, now we only have a 40% probability. So um, I I think, yeah, it it would be fun to have it come down to that one play. I hope you're right.
2: Eric, you're reminding me of some analysis that Ben Baldwin just kicked out in this past week about these fourth down decisions and how they, it looks like coaches are most conservative when the game is most in play. Like they're much more likely to go risky and play kind of the analytics forward if they're way behind or the way ahead, but exactly where it, in some sense it's most important they get conservative. And I've heard others say that I've heard analysts with teams say that they worry about coaches who are planning analytics forward in the regular season, but then they get more conservative in the playoffs. Do you think this is a real pattern, Michael?
6: I think every coach is different. And uh, ultimately, I mean, this goes back to several of the initial fourth down papers, right? You know, the, ultimately they're also want to keep their job and um, <laughs> maybe that's easier if you, if you make the safer play although certainly less so now than, than maybe eight or ten years ago
2: michael we really appreciate your taking some time out of super bowl week and your big data bowl judging to come visit with us always a pleasure to see you thanks so much for having me on all right that was michael lopez director of data and analytics at the nfl we now turn to our second guest, Nick Mangold, longtime offensive lineman in the NFL, two-time All-Pro, whole career with the Jets, which makes him an Audi Weiner favorite. Nick, delighted to have you here. Thanks for joining us.
1: No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: You um, look like you're in snowbound New Jersey right now. Is that right?
1: Very much so. Just got off the sledding hills, um, and so I'm cold and freezing, um, but the kids are <laughs> loving it.
2: Yep. Do you miss – do you miss playing football in snow? Look, or is it, tell us as, as, a, as a professional football player, do you enjoy the, especially as an offensive lineman, do you enjoy the weather and the snow as much as you did when we were kids playing football in weather?
1: <clears throat> yeah, you know, I think so. I think, um, you know, it, it's, I'd much rather play in snow than a very cold rain. Um, you know, I feel like a, a very cold rain uh, just gets the defensive guys' jerseys slippery um, and, and, you know, you, you aren't able to get a good grip. And it's freezing, but once like once the snow hits and it's cold enough, you know where it doesn't really stick to you um, because of your body temperature, it, it's it's awesome. I got to play in uh, Lambeau my f- rookie year, so that was two thousand six, mm-hmm. and it snowed, um, and it was one of the most. It was like that surreal, magical uh, football moment that you you know you get to play in Green Bay while it's snowing. So that was pretty cool.
2: That's great. It's it's cool to hear that that you guys aren't you know, um, inured to that over time. We we lo- we all, you know, celebrate Lambeau and think it would be so special to be there It's cool to hear that you feel that way playing there as well.
1: Mm-hmm. What is
2: what's Super Bowl like week for you like? And how are you thinking about the game on Sunday? How will you experience the game on Sunday? Uh
1: you know, it's different, just like everyone else um is dealing with the Super Bowl week, you know, uh typically I'd be in, in the host city, um, doing media appearances and and whatnot. So um, this year's a little different. It's always funny, too, because my son was actually born on Super Bowl Sunday in, in 2011. So uh, I make it a point to watch the Super Bowl with him um, every year. So I, I usually go down to the host city. We'll spend a couple of days there. Um, and then I always make sure that I'm back before the game starts. Um, so that way I watch the game with him. So this year's a little different. Um, I don't have to rush home on a flight uh, to make it in. So that, that'll be nice. Um, but it's it's definitely kind of a – you, know, you you don't have that same excitement, I think, leading up to the game this year.
2: Right. It's it's it just feels more distant and more removed for sure. Uh, Nick, tell us a little bit about playing center in the NFL. And to start with, talk about the transition. You played tackle in college, yes, for Ohio State, and then you transitioned interior. No, you know?
1: no, I've been, I've actually been a center since uh, seventh grade. Ah. Um so I, I've been doing it for a while. Um, it's it's a lot of fun, and you know, I, I always looked at it. Um, you know, I, I got my start because the uh, our center broke his hand, and they just asked who could snap the ball. Um, and I said I'd give it a try, and then I was stuck there for the rest of my career. Um, but it, you learn to notice, like, the, the um, you're the quarterback of the offensive line. You're almost like the second quarterback uh, for the offense. And so I think that it, it's a pretty unique position where you get to, to kind of be the leader um, up front. And, um, you know, I, I really took it to heart and, and really enjoyed – Um, you know, the kind of the mental game uh, just as much as the physical game.
2: So tell us just a little bit more about that, because we have watched quarterbacks at the line of scrimmage all our lives and we hear them barking things out, but it's harder to even know the center is doing something in there. So when you say the quarterback of the line, what, what exactly are you having to do? What are you having to read and what are you having to communicate?
1: Yeah. So um, there, a lot happens in such a, a little bit of amount of time. So, uh, the quarterback will give you the play call, um, in the huddle. And because of the study that you've done all week, you kind of have a, you have an idea of, um, the play that is called, um, the rules that are, are, uh, within that play, but then also the defense that you're kind of anticipating. So you're, you you kind of already know, all right, it's second and, and five. This is what they <laughs> typically run or it's third and one, um, you know, first and 10. Um, so you have an idea, you, you kind of have a blueprint as you break the huddle. And so when you break the huddle, and then you, um, as you're going up the line, you, you kind of either affirm or figure out what they did differently of what you thought of from the huddle. So, you know, uh, as you're coming up the ball, you see that they're in a 4-2. Um, you know, they might be in a 5-bear uh, front. You know, so you're, you're taking this all in and processing that information because each front um, has different rules um, for each play, in, in, especially in protection. So um, you're taking all that in and you're getting up the line. And when you hear a center make a call, it's almost um, a confirmation of a call. And it's not so much where a quarterback making a call, he's kind of more directing people to a linebacker or changing something. Uh, A lot of times centers are just confirming, you know, the rule that everyone thought it was. Um, But at the same time, you're looking at the safeties, trying to judge, you know, especially in pass protection, if they're going to be coming from a different side. Uh, A lot of times quarterbacks will handle that um, in tandem with the center. Um, so you got to be on the same page with your quarterback. Um, and then if something does change and you need to get, a, a, use a different rule, um, for the play, that's when you, you can alert the other lineman there. Um, and then you, um, you got to make sure that you remember the snap count and snap ball on time. So everyone doesn't <laughs> jump and look foolish. So, uh, there's a lot to process, um, for the eight to, to 12 seconds you get from the huddle, uh, to snapping the ball.
2: It's remarkable. It really, it really does seem remarkable that you can even do that. What, what about on the physical side? And we're trying to kind of take advantage of the fact that we have someone to talk with about offensive line play because so many of us are just completely ignorant. Even those of us who've been watching football all our lives are ignorant, especially at center. Like So we've talked about the quarterbacking aspect of playing center. Physically, what are the most important qualities and, and why in a center versus, you know, we're always talking about tackles and they're protecting the quarterback against the edge rushers. But what does it take to, to succeed as well as you did playing center?
1: Yeah. You know, I think um, at first on your first point of being ignorant about the offensive line um, as a now new fan of football where I don't get to watch and study it. Um, I, I completely understand why people don't pay attention to the offensive line. <laughs> For some reason the camera follows the football and I, I don't get it and I don't understand. So I, I like everyone's asking me like, Oh, you know, which offensive line do you like the most uh, from this year? And I was like, I have no idea. You can't watch them unless you're watching, you know, the all 22. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I now understand that point I always always found it odd I was like why aren't we more appreciated and then now I realize <laughs> um, but on the physical traits you know it, it kind of there's an ebb and flow of the game um, when I came into the league uh, defenses were starting to push more towards a three four um, heavy uh, defense and, and would say uh, you know you have that big nose tackle in the middle and so uh, my physical size and, and nature um, you know had to deal with the Vince Wilforks of, of New England um, and, you know, handling those guys. So, so hold
2: on, Nick, remind us how big you were when you played.
1: Uh, I was six um, anywhere between 3.05 and 3.15, depending on, on what time Davey
2: caught me. Am I right? That sounds big for a center, no?
1: Yeah, no, I, I was definitely told, um, especially as I was going through college, um, that I would probably have to switch to guard in the NFL because I was too tall to play center. Uh-huh. Um which I I never really understood. It was like, you know, you you have tall tackles. What's what's the matter of center? But typically, um, you know, at at the time I came out, I think guys are getting taller now. Uh, They've gotten away from that a little bit. But, um, you know, you see centers that were 6'1". 6'2 was pretty much the max. Um, Okay. So it's... It's Go ahead, sir.
2: And then you're, but then you're facing off. What was Wolford playing at when, when, you were facing off against him?
1: Well, I mean, he was listed at like 350, uh, like 6'2", <laughs> 350. Um, okay. If you believe that, I got this bridge over in Brooklyn. I need <laughs> to sell you because um, there's no way there's three fifty. But I will say that man, um, and I have the utmost respect for him. We had a ton of great ba- battles. He, um, he was huge, but he was also uh, just an athlete. Um, you know, he had athleticism. Uh, that rivaled you know I, I would say a lot of the other defensive tackles uh, and for a guy mm-hmm. his size it was pretty impressive
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so Nick I was going to ask you so um, I've always made this claim that I'm going to be able to tell after the first drive for each team who's going to win the game based on whose offensive line is taking control of the line of scrimmage Am I out of my mind to think that that's actually what's going to determine the outcome of this game? And I don't mean just in protection. I mean to be able to run. You can kind of tell who's pushing who off the line. I claim I can tell it really early in a game. Is that right?
1: Um, yeah, you can definitely tell uh, by the offensive line and, and how they're playing. I don't know if you can definitively say after the first series, sometimes you need to find that rhythm. Um, and you could probably say after the first quarter, you could look at it from there. Um, but it, especially in the run game, uh, we always talked about, uh, you know, you were chopping down a tree. Um, you've never seen someone take an ax and one swing uh, would knock the tree down. Um, you know, you keep chipping away at it. And so when you look at a run game and you look at the first quarter, you know, maybe a handful of run plays only got two or three yards at a time. And then second quarter, maybe three to four yards at a time. And then, you know, that just keeps snowballing. And finally, you know, if a good offense line has imposed their will, uh, you'll see that in the fourth quarter, you're ripping off 10, 15, 20-yard runs. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Nick, before we let you go, we want to hear about your businesses. You started a, a barbecue business. yes? Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, the, um, it's uh, 74 BBQ. Um, it, it's my barbecue sauce. It was something I got into barbecue um, four or five years ago, or five or six years ago. Started making my own sauce four or five years ago. Um, and so I have two sauces out. It's the OG and the spicy OG um it's been a lot of fun they've been out for almost a year now we're getting close to our year anniversary um and it, it's just been a neat process and barbecue is something special uh, that you know brings people together um brings community together enjoying a good meal so uh to, to be a part of that and, and to, to spread my sauce to people um because i think it's the best and i want other people to enjoy it um has been a lot of fun and uh, we're able to give money back to answer the call uh, which is a, a big thing for me for new york city um, the families of, uh, fallen first responders on the job, uh, you know, they, they help out and give them support. So, uh, mm-hmm. we, not only am I lending my ugly mug, uh, now I can add a, a monetary contribution to them as well. And I'm pretty happy about
2: that. That's great. Nick, where, where should people look to find your 70, 74 BBQ sauces?
1: So we're starting to spread. Um, you know, you can always get it at 74BBQ.com. Um, that's spelled out 74BBQ.com. Uh, but we're now on Amazon. Um, we're here in uh, New Jersey, New York. Um, and I think we might have broken into Connecticut and Stu Leonard. So uh, you, you go to the website, uh, 74BBQ.com. We have a whole list of, of where you can find it. But, uh, you know, Amazon has been a big one that, that is just new to us uh, within the past two weeks. So we're pretty excited about that.
2: That's awesome. Look, you're wading into a barbecue controversy. You know, what what geographic leanings do you have? But I want to I want to test one other controversy before we go. You may or may not be able to weigh in on it. Where do you stand on Sam Darnold? We loved him coming out of college. There's a lot of folks who think that he just hasn't been in the right environment. He's had a number of years under his belt now. It's one He's of the most interesting got. questions in the NFL. Do you, do, you think that, do you think that we know what we need to know about him, or do you think he needs a change of environment? Maybe he'll get it right in New York, but what, where, do, where do you sit on him?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I sit on um, – that's a tough call because he really hasn't gotten the fair shake, um, uh, you know, coming out and, and really testing himself with the weapons that he needs. I mean, look, he had – last year he had mono. He was out for uh, a month, and, you know, um, that puts you behind the eight ball. This year between uh, the coronavirus and just having not a lot of great talent um, around him, um, you know, how can you judge like if you put, uh, you know – Let's say the, the hot topic right now, a, a Deshaun Watson on the team. Like, mm-hmm. does he – is he able to do anything without, you know, the proper protection and without the weapons outside? So mm-hmm. um, I, what I am encouraged, though, is that uh, Joe Douglas, or the Jets GM, um, has been here for a year. So he's been able to watch Darnold he's been able to see him. Um, and, and since he didn't pick him, he has no real tie to him. Um, so he'll be able to look at it a little bit more objectively – uh, and I think that is a, a good feel for what they want to do with this uh, second uh, the second pick overall. Um, do they want to keep them? What they it, It's better than having a new GM come in who had no idea. You know, is now trying to catch up. Um, okay. He now he you know Joe has that uh, that leg to to stand on.
2: Okay, wonderful. All right. Well, listen, Nick. Thanks for spending time with us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Good luck with your unusual Super Bowl weekend. Enjoy it with the birthday boy. And good luck with the barbecue sauces and the great cause you're contributing to there.
1: Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it.
2: You bet. Nick Mangold, two-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Pro Bowl center coming out of Ohio State back in 05 or so before an 11-year career in the NFL. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have have to go. Come back and join us.
0: You're listening to
2: Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. You can also reach out to us between shows. We are on Twitter at WMoneyball. At WMoneyball is our handle. Always happy to hear from you guys, take suggestions from you. You can also send us an email, moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. It's our mail, mailbag. We pick up questions from you guys, suggestions. Again, always happy to hear from you we're doing a super bowl special show this week we're sad not to be in tampa bay we were in miami or we were packing for miami last year and we were fantasizing about the next trip to tampa bay but the world did not cooperate but we can still talk to some of our favorite folks from around the nfl we are delighted in this next quarter to welcome scott Pioli. scott of course three-time super bowl champion five-time get that guys five-time nfl executive of the year Spent 27 years in the league. Now he's an analyst for the NFL Network. We had the privilege of meeting and visiting with Scott last year in Miami as well. Scott, welcome back to the show.
0: Well, Thanks so much for having me. Great to be back with this entire crew here. Yeah, a little bit different setup than last
2: year, but this is working. This is working. <laughs> Glad you feel like it. <laughs> Tell us, um, it's different for everybody. How, what, how are you going to do Super Bowl weekend this year? And, and, and what are you expecting on Sunday? Yeah, well,
0: first of all, I'm spending the entire week. Uh, yesterday, I, I went through the, uh, the Radio Row car wash virtually from my, my basement office here. And uh, I think I did like, I can't even, I don't even remember the count of all of the interviews, the radio interviews and, and a couple of TV interviews. And that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to be on air with NFL Network and CBS yep. HQ. Um, and I actually did a couple of things, a couple of other things with uh, the family from Sirius and uh, that's what it's going to be. I'm going to be doing it for my home, my home office here. Some people call it a basement in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'm doing, get to hang out with you guys. The, the number of people
2: I can, I can get to is terrific. Yeah. So uh, when, when, when you think about this game, what's the first thing that comes to mind? You're, you're obviously a more sophisticated consumer of football than the rest of us. When, when someone like you thinks about this game, this matchup between the Chiefs and the Pats, what comes to mind? Chiefs
4: opinion. in the box, not the
2: Patriots. Yeah,
6: that's right.
4: well, you, you're, you're thinking
2: <laughs>
0: Brady's sorry. in it. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it, well, it's so a funny
6: autopilot.
0: <laughs> Kate, you're not the first sorry. person to do that. The number of people that have been doing that this week—it's really funny. It, yeah, right, it's it's autopilot, but it's Brady too, right? Brady—it's got to be the Patriots. That's hilarious, well, you're right? I, I what I think about is exactly what everyone—I think everyone else—is talking about and thinking about is um, the fact that. I just think the Chiefs are so dominant right now. There's such a well-built football team, such a well-coached football team that you sit there wondering, you know, how can they lose? How are they going to lose? And I understand they had two losses. Uh, everyone gets that because that's the whole any given Sunday. But there's such a well-oiled machine. But then on the other side, you've got this defense that's been starting to ascend and they might match up really, really well in some certain spots that other teams haven't matched up. And oh, by the way, that quarterback number 12 uh, has a gift. And and so I'm excited because I I hope it's going to be a very – I hope it's going to be as exciting as a game that my mind has made it believe that it can be.
2: Right, right. Right. Well, you're, you're, you're conjuring a stronger, de- a stronger defense as is going to be necessary. So, so few defenses match up to these guys, but let me ask you one question about the chiefs. Eric's dying to jump in. Eric's a long time bucks guy, by the way, but. Oh,
4: welcome to the party. <laughs> uh, I,
2: I was at the party
4: 19 years ago. I just had a long <laughs> wait in between. <laughs> oh,
0: Scott, I wish you- we were on video for, for the listeners to see because I've got my old 1979 Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, the Selman Brothers, unbeaten, untied, unbelievable. But that season didn't work out so much. But uh, i bet that is that as part of my background I'm representing on TV for the uh, both
2: teams for the Chiefs. But those guys that 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 was those are interesting times. So those guys came into the league, was it 76 that they were the expansion 76, team?
4: Yes. 76. 76?
2: The Selman, Scott, I'm a University of Texas guy, so I, I had the terror of pulling for a team that played the Selman Brothers in college. Oh, so I was quite yeah. happy to see them leave so <laughs> <laughs> um tay tay i'm are you curious your perspective on this we've been talking about the chiefs all year, of course, expectations were high, but even though they only had two losses, they didn't look that good they, they were winning games you know by a few points here and there. They were coming back they weren't blowing people out in the way you'd expect a dominant team to blow them out. so the most parsimonious explanation is well they 're not as good as they used to be or not as good as we thought they were. The alternative explanation is, well, Andy Reid's only showing what he has to show. They'll pull it together when they need to. And I tend to short those kinds of stories because they're, they're kind of cute, right? But I, they're, they're kind of complicated. Might that be true, though? Is it possible that, that Reid and that team kind of plays up to its competition and they're going to do what they need to do to win? And when, they, when the big teams, when the conference championships arrive, then they're going to look really good.
0: You, you know, Kate, I'll say this. You know, having been a part of the, the last team that did back-to-back, the idea, the emotion, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to have to go out there and be the hunted week after week after week. And they, you know, the the, the bottom line is they did what they had to do to win. I don't know if they're necessarily playing down to the competition because I, I think what they do is they do what they have to do. And sometimes it's human nature. I don't want to say they get lazy. I don't want to say that they get complacent, but it's human nature. They know. I almost feel like the offense toys with people at times. It's like that they can score at will whenever they need to be explosive. They will turn it on and be explosive. But just like happens with the tortoise and the hare, right? Sometimes you rest a little bit too much. And you might get beaten that race. But I, I I still think that they're a dominant football team, certainly offensively, and they do a very good job on special teams. The defense has had moments where they've struggled, but uh, they've done what they've had to do to win football games in a season which is very difficult mentally and emotionally to prepare for as being the hunted.
4: Scott I want to ask you a question just because you know although I am a Tampa Bay fan for the last 20 plus years I did grow up as a Giants fan and I remember the Super Bowl extraordinarily well where the Giants beat the Bills uh this is the one where the Scott Norwood miss I, as I remember the Bills never punted in that game um is this another one of those games like if you're the Bucs do you try to win this game 20 to 19 and just run the ball long drives etc or do you have to win it 50 to 48 in a shootout
0: I think you hope that you don't have to win it 50 to 48. I think that you go into the game hoping that Leonard Fournette and Rojo are going to do the job and keep it. Because again, I go back to, I can only speak for the models that I know. And I know when we used to have to line up against Peyton Manning and try to win the conference in order to go to the Super Bowl. every time we played Peyton Manning in that explosive offense, our best defense at times was our own offense by controlling the ball staying on the field, limiting the number Mm -hmm. of series that the other team could get. And it was really an important part of our uh, trying to be. And I think that that's how you want to approach the game or any game with the Kansas City Chiefs. Whether or not you can do that is a whole different story. But uh, again, keep the other explosive offense off the field as much as possible. Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah, I have kind of a question related to that. And it kind of touches upon your whole exhausting to be uh, repeat champions. To, you know, I, I also got the impression watching games this year that the Chiefs kind of, at least offensively, were toying with teams and that they could kind of score well. And I almost, I got a feeling that there's maybe some amount of load management involved mm. on that part of that team where, you know, if they really did score at will, like, it, you know, I think your average KC drives, if they were trying hard, would last about 45 seconds, but their defense would would <laughs> Would be destroyed by the end of the game or by the end of the season because they'd just be on the field, you know, after every other minute. And so, to what extent do you think there actually is? And I think maybe I'm overreading it, but there is like this sense that like maybe the offense was intentionally slowing itself down in part as kind of a strategy for kind of overall load management for the team.
0: Well, I, that's a fascinating thought. I hadn't thought about that. But I also think that, you know, you look at they, – they have big strike capability. But what they have done is at, they've tried to play ball control. And I don't know if the reason is that they were trying to keep their own defense off the field or if they were trying to, Shane, really get better as the course, the course of the season went on. Because I think a lot of the smart coaches this year realized they didn't have mini camp, They didn't have a normal training camp. They didn't have preseason games. So they could not get as much work with their offense and those players mm-hmm. working together that, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I love this idea of, again, management of the, the reps that the defense that is average gets, but as much as it was it within this year's 16 games, teams had to play their regular season, their preseason, and their mini camps in order to get players on the same page. To me, that's mm-hmm. why I felt like in the case of the Buccaneers that, Brady and some of those other pieces got there so late they weren't together. Mm -hmm. So they needed as many reps as possible within games.
4: So Scott, let me ask you, um, how much does this game, you know, Brady's obviously legacy is pretty well set. I think he's, he's good. Um, but let me ask you the question. How much does this game potentially affect the long-term legacy of Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes? If they win this, not only does Patrick Mahomes have two, he's the first guy since I think it's 0304 to win two in a row. Andy Reid, you know, you could forget any NFC disappointment with the Eagles, this, that. He's won two consecutive Super Bowls. Does this fundamentally change potentially the legacy of Mahomes and Reed?
0: Um, If they win or if they lose, well, if they win, if if they win, I don't think it changes because I think regardless of whether they win this weekend, they're going to be a force moving forward for the next Mm -hmm. several years. Their legacy is being built right now. And if there's a one-off where they lose, you know, that's going to happen to, to, to good teams and great teams. I think that they're going to be in the mix and in the hunt so often that um, th- that it's not going to matter if they lose. Now, if they win, I think that th- we may be talking about a team who you know has the possibility to legitimately win three in a row, which mm-hmm. you know we ha- ha- has never been done. But um, th- th- I just think this franchise was built so well again from a talent standpoint and from a coaching standpoint. They haven't had much attrition. They really haven't on the coaching side, and that's a that's a very important part. Yes, they've lost bits and pieces and a couple, but they haven't lost some of the most significant key components. And uh, I think that that is going to keep them.
2: in. The, in. And the other Scott, thing is, what put is it
0: under contract? Go ahead, Kate. Kate, I'm Sorry. What
2: is it that is, that's allowed them to do that? If you if we look back in the early era of the of the Super Bowl, there were lots of back to backs, and we kind of grew up on the, the Packers, the Steelers, the Cowboys. And then it's, it seems much tougher to pull off these days. These guys are are making run at it like few other than the Pats have done. What is it beyond Mahomes? I mean, Mahomes is like the obvious thing, but what is it beyond Mahomes? You're talking about not having attrition. You're talking about keeping a coaching staff together. Why does that happen? That's not just we can't just take it for granted, right? Something's creating that. Well, there, there's stability
0: because there there's for whatever reason. Again, go back to the Patriots when when I was fortunate to be a part of that program. For that first run, we had a lot of stability in our coaching staff. And then we started losing people, Charlie, Weiss. We lost Romeo. Then some of the changes started happening. There were a lot of people that started leaving. That hasn't hit the Chiefs yet. So the stability has been there. But I think one of the commonalities that I also see between our old Patriots program and this Chiefs program and the Pete Carroll program, which has been in the hunt for a while, the Steelers program it, within all those organizations, I see stability in the in coaching, the front office. But the other key thing is player development. They are developing their own players, and they're keeping players, and they're strong in the high class, and they're strong in the middle class as well. And mm-hmm. those middle class players, and I say you know lower paid players are developing within the system and when their opportunity comes they're ready for the opportunity
2: real quick Scott we don't we often don't think about development at the professional leagues in fact, I mean I've talked to NHL GMs where they you know they explicitly don't develop players once once they reach the top the top league we talk about it a lot in college what is it that allows a franchise like the ones you named to actually develop their players better that sounds like a real advantage if you can do it
0: well I think first of all, you have to believe in player development. you can't feed into the mindset. People will often say, well there's not time to develop players. yes, there is right It goes that da- it goes back to the teachers. If you have coaches that are good teachers and there's a lot of really smart people in football and there's a lot of smart people in every industry. But if you get the smart people that are not only smart but they know how to teach the knowledge that they have within, that is how you develop players. You have to have a system, you have to have a process, and you, are, you can't get scared off by the couple of players that develop and then run off. And you can't say, ah, see, we, we didn't get to keep that player. Again, develop as many as you can, keep as many as you can, and understand that there's going to be some degree of attrition,
2: but manage yourself through that. Scott, Scott, one last follow-up on that. Does it take a certain level of success to even have the capacity to do player development? You talked about, you know, you kind of have to redirect resources to some extent to actually focus on developing players. Is it the case that the teams that are struggling in the middle feel like they just have to kind of push for performance this week, whatever it takes, and that might mean we don't develop those players, and it's the teams that have some stability and some success who can then carve off a little capacity to work on player development, and it's actually this self-fulfilling cycle. I believe it
0: is. And if you get, again, you have stability within the key parts of the organization. You have assistant coaches that are very good teachers. I mean, Dante Skarniecki, the way that he was able to help that Patriots program, the, you know, I also think about the players have to buy in and believe in it also, Okay, You can't just have this system and this process that that you tell people is a good developer. They have to believe in it as well. Mm-hmm.
4: So, mm-hmm. Scott, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, what are the chances, since we're obviously also an analytics show on here at Morton Moneyball, that we watch this game and we just see an outright analytics blunder? Like either a team not going for it on fourth and one when the analytics says they should, a team either not going for two when they said they should, a team kicking the field goal, doing you know doing this, doing that. What are the chances you think at this high level with these two coaching staff, with as much as we've learned about analytics today, that, you know, at W Moneyball is tweeting during the game. I can't believe team X just gave away 7% win probability by doing this.
0: I believe that there's a chance it happens because again, we're all human. I also think that there's a chance, Eric, that the analytics get it wrong sometimes too. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's the truth. And this is, you know, I remember that con- I felt last year when we had this conversation it was so awesome. When we talked about the respect of the two departments and the two different perspectives, coming mm-hmm. together and i think what we have to understand there is going to be human error that doesn't go with the analytics at some point and i do believe that that'll happen to what degree how big of a, a blunder it is i don't know but i also think that there's going to be some some recommendations made via analytics that don't get as much focus but had you gone with the analytics that would have been wrong and again yeah. to me that's where the beauty comes in the best franchises is where people lay down their arms. They're consistently respectful to both sides, and analytics understands that football is going to screw it up. Football understands that analytics is going to screw it up at some point in time. There'll be a wrong decision, and you don't poke one another in the eye and you say, It's okay. Let's just get it right. Let's try to get it right the next time. That's what true teams are about. Mm-hmm. Rather than pointing the finger and saying, oh, the analytics said this, you should have done this, Andy Reid, you don't know it well. You know, Andy Reid's making some instinctive and field decisions in games that maybe didn't marry up. So again, it just needs a great right marriage.
2: Scott, you, you're one of the people who really sits at the intersection of those two worlds. I'm curious what advice you would give to the analytics community on being better uh, in whatever form. So there's been so many advances in analytics and there's nice contributions, but there's always ways to get better. So from your perspective, coming more from the traditional side but being open-minded, what do you think the analytics community needs to do to be better? Kate, okay, here, here's what I'll say is
0: I don't want to I don't want to say something just to the analytics side because I think that's where the problem starts, is that people with football backgrounds say, you know what, analytics, this is what you need to do to come closer to us. And then the analytics people are saying, you know what, football, this is what you need to be. To, to do okay. these so in order to bridge that gap i just think that both sides need to lay down their arms <laughs> lay down their egos you know just don't don't be that guy or that gal you know just just show some grace right yeah. so I, I can't i think i'd be i'd be a fraud to say you you know this is what this is what the analytics folks need to do to be better to get over the football side. The problem is this is what football people did for years and years and years. Now we're at this point where certain things have shifted and the people on the analytics side saying, all those football meatheads, this is what you need to do to come closer to us. And to me, it's just... Maybe we all need to stop advising the others what they need to do so much, right? <laughs> I mean, we this could turn into a political conversation, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe if we all just lay down our arms here, be strong, be confident, but be
2: respectful and show some gratitude and grace. That That's great, that's a great note to end on. We're sad to have to, to, have to wrap up so quickly, Scott. We're always happy to get time with you, but um, we appreciate. You're spending some time with us. Wish you the best uh, with this weekend and your analyst work. And we look forward to talking with you more down the road. Well, thank you guys. I
0: really appreciate it. It doesn't have to be the Super Bowl every year. There's 11 other months we could. Good, you. good. We'll take, take care of that. Thank you so much.
2: All right, that has been Scott Pioli, friend of the show, longtime exec in the NFL. Our next guest, another friend of the show, Justin Tuck. You know him, two-time Super Bowl champ, two-time Pro Bowl defensive end out of Notre Dame, also out of the Wharton School. He's a grad of our NBA program. Justin, welcome to the show.
7: Thank you for having me, man. I, I guess I did something okay, you know, On the first time we all invited me again, so uh, it's my pleasure.
2: Absolutely. We, we caught you on Radio Row about this time last year down in Miami. It was a lot of fun yep. to be down there. We're all kind of sad that we're not going to be down there this year. How will you do Super Bowl weekend this year? Are you, I assume you're not going to Tampa Bay. No, nah, I'm actually going
7: to be there. You um, are it's funny the role i live now is is one of finance so i um uh, i actually have some clients that i have to go see part with the fact that i um some of the some of the things i still do the nfl um so yeah i'm, I'm gonna be down there i uh I don't know how, I don't, it's going to be weird, right? Because no one it just seems like I, all the people that I know that normally I'm down there with or, or, or connecting with or doing stuff from a sponsorship standpoint, they're not having a presence down there. So I'll be, right. honestly, most of my time there will be in, in, in a Goldman Sachs business hoop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, a little different. Well, listen, before we do football, do it. let's do a little bit on that because I'm curious how things have been going for you since you left Wharton how you're finding life in Goldman Sachs after life with the New York Giants. It's New York, New York is still, but how yeah. is it on the financial side of things?
7: Oh, that's good. It's really good. I mean, I, I'm surrounded by some of the smartest football, you know, financial minds there are in, uh, in in finance being at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, they really embraced someone like me, right? Coming in from, from a, a world of sports, not necessarily having the typical um, – financiers background. Right. So um, that's been something that, you know, there has been a, is a, it's been a, it's been a good experience for me so far. Um, I run a private wealth team there and, um, and I'm VP of our sports and entertainment practice there. Um, so I, I live kind of a double life, right. But it's, uh, it's good. It's, it's, it's allowing me to kind of take some of the, the experiences and talents from the football locker room and leadership perspectives and, 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 and cultivate those over here at Goldman Sachs from a financial perspective. So um, I'm really enjoying it and uh, looking forward to just continuing to grow in this role.
2: It's neat. That feature of it is neat. And many folks may not appreciate how much of a team team work it is on the private client services side of things, the wealth management side of things. Um, Goldman, all different size teams, right? And different ways of, of building it out. And it's, it's a fun little organizational design problem, but it's very much team oriented.
7: Absolutely, I, it, you know, and you think about teams, right? I got the the opportunity when I came in to kind of pick um, or have a lot of say so in the team that I got to partner with, and the one I chose um, is the team that covers all the partners of the firm, so it's the partners coverage group within the Goldman Sachs umbrella of private private wealth. And the reason why I chose it because I, I thought about it from the perspective of right, I'm I'm not going to have the same amount of experience. Uh, as those kids who you know took finance in the undergrad, you right. know, went and worked at a bank, and then went to the MBA, right? Um, obviously, I'll have more life experiences, but I need to catch up on the the operations of a of the financial the financial part of the, of, our, of our ledger. So, um, I wanted to be in the place where I was going to get challenged the most, and I don't know if any other place within Golden to get challenged than to. Be trying to add value to the balance sheets of our partners; those yeah, people incredible. who run our divisions. Right. Um, trying to tell the CEO, you know how you know, trying to add value to those type of people on their on their personal balance sheets obviously makes you um, a lot sharper, a lot quicker. Um, mm-hmm. And but it also, like I said, it, it allowed me to just ramp up my my. You know, obviously, Warden did a great job of, of giving me those that that. That institutional knowledge, but it's different when you think about it, what you learn in a textbook in a classroom setting, and then applying that in the operational side of building portfolios and dealing with high net worth individuals, right? So the experience that I've gotten in a short amount of time here at Goldman Sachs, I think, has has definitely allowed me to kind of wrap things up here quickly.
2: Justin, do you play any role as kind of an ambassador for good financial decision-making among your, among former players or current players? Do you, do you work with the Players Association in any way? Are you, I mean, are you kind of like um, doing good by helping people, you know, not just selling business, but like in sure. general advocating some good financial decisions?
7: Yeah, we, um, I really can't answer that question, uh, but I will answer in saying that I do, um, I do try to take the platform that I have now go, just like when I was playing football, I try to take that platform NFL and add value to those who are trying to get in the NFL, those who are in it and just learning the ropes. I, I, I do the same thing now. Um, so I am definitely in talks with a lot of my former teammates, a lot of my former, you know, you know, sponsors, a lot of my former um, relationships within the sports world uh, and trying to add value from the perspective of the platform I have now on the finance, finance mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm.
2: let's talk a little bit about football you came out of notre dame third round pick and you go on to this illustrious career and i'm, I'm you know we're we're about to roll into draft season and so yeah. notre, the super bowl won't be done for 50 minutes before we're, we're talking about draft and which quarterback's going to go and which edge sure. rusher and all that stuff and the perennial question with the draft is how do you know about a guy's character and it's one thing to measure him what he can jump and run at the combine. It's another to understand how hard he's going to work and what he's going to do when he gets knocked down. What, what's your assessment of how teams do re- on that front and how do you think they could do better on that front?
7: Yeah, I think, I think that I've always felt like the draft is a crapshoot, right? You really don't know. Um, and I'm, I'm always intrigued um, and obviously, I don't live in this world, but I'm always intrigued what GMs and owners and coaches think when they're dra- they're trading a proven player for the opportunity for more, more draft picks. We just saw the Matthew Stafford trade that came out, mm-hmm. and, and you know they gave up a pretty decent quarterback in, in, in Matt golf right? It, you know he's not, you know I think in the trade of Matt Golf versus Matthew Stafford, yes, Matthew Stafford is a better, you know, proven, more proven quarterback. But when you think about the fact that they. Detroit is getting a somewhat proven, right? He's not, you know, yeah. Matthew Stafford, but a somewhat adequate quarterback in, in golf. Plus, I think three first-round picks or two first-round pick and a third pick. I, you know, it's hard for me to say, you know, how I would deal with it. I'm, I'm always, I always like to get more of the proven asset, but the proven asset in this case isn't, like Matthew Stafford is a 10, but, Matt, you know, Golf is probably a what I don't want to disrespect, them, but a seven. So it's a it's a part three in between those two picks, right? Yeah. And it ain't like they just getting a 10 and another team getting a zero and then you yeah. add in the first rounders. But I think to answer your question, you know, from a character standpoint, you really never know. You gotta do your due diligence around, you know. I know when I was, you know, I was coming out in draft, you know, all the teams they would, you know, bring you in, they would ask you about your family. They would ask, they would want to talk to your family. They would want to talk mm-hmm. to your coaches, your players. They'd be, they'll try to be around at games, or their scouts will try to be around at games to see how you responded in moments on the sideline. So and so, and then they, will you know, obviously they're gonna have that in, that that interview with you and ask you these poignant questions. And a lot of them are trying to pick at maybe sore spots in your career. You know, in this game, you got this personal foul because whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're trying to f- see or j- trying to create an atmosphere in that interview to kind of get you off your P's and Q's and see how yeah. you respond to it, right? Mm-hmm. And to answer your question as far as how they can do it better, I don't, I don't, I don't know if they can. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think it. it at the core of your question, the draft is a crapshoot. You got to do your best job of trying to figure out what you have, what you have, and uh, a lot of times teams get it wrong
2: but um, what what did they get wrong what what did they get wrong about you what did they miss about you that <laughs> that left you as a third round pick i mean third round pick is a great thing right but it's not as great as you ultimately were
7: Well what happened to me was um i had a knee injury my junior year um and i tried to come back <laughs> quicker than i should have i just say that cuz i knew like my junior year people don't know this but i was actually declaring for the draft i got hurt in my last game of my junior season. I was going to mm-hmm. declare for the draft because I literally had three credits left to graduate. I could have graduated that summer. Um, so I was going to declare as a junior. I tore my ACL against Syracuse the last last game of the season. So I obviously had to come back. But I know known where I was slotted my junior year. Like, when you know, when you think about coming out, they had the service you could call the NFL and they would have some people, reputable people. My person was um, Mr. Poyun from um, the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, And he basically said, you know, you're a top 15 pick, you know, this pass rush is coming out, this quarterback coming out. My junior year, I'd set the Notre Dame sack record. I was one sack off from being the, the, having the uh, most sacks in the NCAA uh, that season. Uh, I think Erasmus James beat me, uh, but I didn't play the last game. So I tell Erasmus, (laughs) I would have beat you, but it didn't happen.
2: Um, So I was glad to be a
7: mid to early first round pick. And then coming back my senior year, you know, I still remember it. Mel Mel Kiper said on TV, I think one of our linebackers got drafted. Courtney Watson got drafted. And in his, you know, in in his talking about Courtney Watson getting drafted, he mentioned me. Like, you know, Courtney Watson was part of this defense, but this guy coming out next year, Justin Tuck, he's going to be the – so that's kind of what was in my brain. So my brain was like, I have to get back. I have to rehab this knee, get back to where I was, and not slip. Well, I – Got tendonitis in my knee because I came back too quickly. Mm. And still, mm. going into the draft, I was still slide to be a first-round pick. Got to the combine. Couldn't work out because of the tendonitis. They tested my knee. They felt like – and I don't know if they felt like truly I was not going be to the, be the player I was, but they're going to use anything they can against you to slot you down anyway. And, and long story short, I got slotted down because of a you know, tendonitis in my knee. Okay. And um, that caused me <laughs> – um, Dr. Andrews basically did my surgery, um, to clean out the tendonitis the next season my, after my rookie year. And he basically told me, uh, yeah, that knee cost you about, you know, 15 million bucks. Oh, I, was like, oh.
0: I was like, thanks
7: doc. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Jeez. but again, I mean, I think that's what they got wrong. They, they didn't, they didn't, what they didn't get right about me was the fact that I was that kid from Kelsen, Alabama that was used to playing through pain or not, never, never giving up. And, mm-hmm. and I I listened to all the naysayers during that draft. I still remember there was – I think it was 10 or 11 defensive linemen taken before me. I still mm-hmm. remember that. <laughs> I still remember coming into the Giants locker room day one of training camp and my coach looking at me and be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm pissed. And he was like, why are you pissed? I was like, because I should – I should have been that guy or that guy, or that guy. Yeah. And luckily over time I matured and, and realized just how great the opportunity I had at being a third round pick and being able to work on the Michael straight hand New York and being in New York. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't regret any of that now, but at the time as a young 21 year old kid, I was, I was a little upset.
2: Wow. Wow. Listen, man, bouncing it forward a little bit. I want to get your take on the Super Bowl one aspect in particular. We are always talking about Casey's offense. You know a little bit about their defense having played for the coordinator, right? What what can you what can you tell us about Spags and what do you expect and what do you think people don't quite get or understand about the defensive side of the Chiefs?
7: Yeah, I, I talked to Spags this morning. Um, the thing that they don't get about Spags is this, and I, and I think they're starting to get it now. Um, but for a while they didn't get it. Spags is a is the type of defensive mind where he says, Okay, I know I like to run a four-three. I like to 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 blitz off the edges and allow my D linemen to have stunts up the middle. That's my core, right? But I don't have that defense. I don't have that that those players to be able to incorporate that. I want to play man-to-man. I want to use a little bit of the skies, laying the downs, but if, if I have the people to do it. But if he doesn't have the people to do it, he can customize a defense to his players. And that's one thing that, that's rare in this league for, for a proven guy. Mm-hmm. It's rare in this league to say, you know what, I know I can – I, I'm better served being a 4-3 base defense, whatever. But because I have Justin Tuck, O.C. and you know, Michael Strahan, we're, we're probably going to be the to pressure quarterbacks a lot quicker than normally, right? So, all right, let me get out of my own way and say, oh, I want to blitz this guy on third down and give these guys more time on the back end. Let's, 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 let's run some type of uh, you know trap two defense or whatever it may be that's going to give them a little second longer because I know these guys can rush. And that's mm-hmm. the strength of our defense. So we're gonna play to that strength. Mm-hmm. When you go to Kansas City, they might not have Justin and, and O.C. And, and Michael and, and Kiwanuka and, and all those studs we had up front, right? So now I gotta say, okay, who do, who is the what's the base of our defense? Is it the linebackers? Is it the secondary? Mm-hmm. And let's build a defense around that base. Mm-hmm. Now he does have some studs up front, you know, Chris Jones and, and Clark and you know guys up there. They can get after the passer, but like they, he also had this guy named Tyron Matthew back there, Honey Badger. Mm-hmm. Let's try to figure out a way to uh, highlight him in this defense. Let's let's highlight this guy there. And but and not only that, from a, a globe a, a three sixty view of the defense, it might come into a week and say, I don't like our matchup here. Let's that's, 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 mm-hmm. let's let's rotate Matthew out. Let's let's, mm-hmm. let's show the blitzing early in the down. But at the end of the down, we want him being deep third because I don't like mm-hmm. our matchup at the corner. So we mm-hmm. want to get that corner more help. Mm-hmm. He, he has the ability to really understand his defenses, his players, and build a defense around it. He's very flexible. And, I, and he had this saying, him and Coach Kaufman had this saying, it was like, we we are going to be the best team at midstream adjusting. I'm going to make sure that you guys know every facet of our defense so that, all right, one week we might be a man-to-man team. Next week we might be a zone team. Next mm-hmm. week we might be a mixture mm-hmm. of the hybrid of that. Next One week we might be a blitzing team. One week we're going to say Justin – Front four, you guys got it. You're going to have to cover us. And we were so well-versed in – because teams like to, you know, do different things on the offensive side of the ball to just see how you're going to react. We were so well-versed in, in having that answer, and, I, and that's what I see from him in Kansas City, right? I see he has those ans- – or he's had those answers. Okay. Tom Brady's going to know that too because he's obviously faced them a lot. Yeah. Um, and I just love watching the, 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 the chess match between – yeah, the Bruce Aarons of the world and the uh, Spags of the world when it comes to those af- offense and defense, uh, you know, kind of back and forth.
5: Yep. yep. You had a, I mean, famously had a lot of success against Tom Brady a couple, uh, a couple of times. And, and <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously the, the, the personnel on the teams, especially that 2017, the defensive personnel yourself included was incredibly impressive. And I would sort of say, You know, compared to the Kansas City kind of defense, at least in terms of the personnel is, you know, probably certainly has a lot more of the kind of big names. You've kind of convinced me that, you know, that they're, you know, Spagnola is going to be coaching them up to kind of excel at their strengths. Do you think it'll work? Do you think that, you know, like facing Tom Bray, Tom Bray, obviously you did sort of highlight the primary weakness of Tom Bray that under pressure up the middle, you know, he like every other quarterback becomes mortal is Casey, you know, do you think the combination of, you know, the Casey personnel they have on the defense coached to coached up will have the same level of success?
7: I'm, I'm really, Torn here because, on one side of things, and like I'm on this, might be a long ass. I'm gonna try to make this actually really briefer than it should be. Kansas City offense is gonna normally allows Kansas City's defense to do some things that they, you know, they might not necessarily get to do, right? And what I mean by that, Kansas City's offense normally has them up by 14 points, Mm -hmm. right? Or more. So mm-hmm. Spags can allow his defense to play freely. He can take some more chances. He can play. They're playing with a lead, so he can go out and pressure quarterback. He knows those quarterbacks have the throw to mm-hmm. catch up with us or to keep up with us. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, that allows you to do so, have so much more on the defense side of the ball, especially extravagated blitzes and so on and so forth. But when I think about it, Kansas City has been accustomed to being in those leads, but I don't know if that's going to be the case in the Super Bowl because a lot of a lot of the components, a lot of the the the, the side of the ball that hasn't been talked about a lot is Tampa Bay's defense. That defense is playing phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. And they have the uh, the athleticism, they have the talent to match up with Kansas City. Not saying that they're going to stop them. I don't think anybody can stop Kansas City, but I think they can slow them down enough. To allow Tom Brady to stay in his offense, right? Still do the play action, still do a couple runs here and, and, and take some deep shots and so on and so forth, and not have to be, always be looking up, trying to catch up with Mahomes and the crew, mm-hmm. which obviously puts more pressure on Spags and his defense because he's going to have to play a, a, a complete game. He's, he's mm-hmm. not going to be able to say, All right, we're about 14, I can take this sheet of paper. That, that covers the run option of, the, of our defense and throw it out the window because I don't care about runs. Yeah. Tom Brady has to throw the ball. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to see a really good game where um, it's probably going to come down to the fourth quarter. Uh, and, but I do think Kansas City has, for me, just a little bit more gravitas around their entire team. Mm-hmm. When you think about they've been there last year, they, that whole team knows what it feels like to be in that big game, that Super Bowl game. Obviously, Tom Brady knows what it feels like more than anybody. But I don't know if that if that that filters throughout the entire Tampa Bay team. Plus, mm-hmm. the distractions that could come about in Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay being at home, that's not a normal setting, obviously, for a Super Bowl week, right? You get away, you're gone for a week, if not two weeks. Oh, you're in a boring town you don't have your family and all this maybe so I, that's that's something i haven't heard a lot of people talk about mm-hmm. and that's something that could come into play from a distraction standpoint
5: but uh, interesting you, to bring that up because you know normally you'd kind of think oh it'd be an advantage to be at home you know you don't have to travel as much but you're kind of maybe maybe during the particularly distracting circumstances of the super bowl it might actually be a disadvantage
7: I, I, I'm not saying it will be. I think you know mm. Tampa Bay has obviously handled a lot of the situations, and all every team has with COVID and so on and so forth. This team and every team in this league had to grow up. If they wasn't already grown, they had to grow up pretty quickly and, and handle yeah. the the changing winds of this league. So I think you know Tampa Bay obviously is better for it. Uh, but when I when I think about a Super Bowl week, being in Arizona, being in Indianapolis, it allowed us to get away from the noise. And concentrate and really concentrate. And what I'm what I say really concentrate is you know, it's a super bowl. You gotta concentrate. But like just block, blocking out all the other stuff. The comfortable the comfortable the comfortability of me being at home all week, the you know, my family right there around me. I'm I'm assuming that Tampa Bay is staying at home in their houses, right? So you gotta deal with kids. Kids aren't going to school. <laughs> right, that <their, their laughs> virtual learning, all these different things that we haven't even thought about, and I, you know, I might be making it up, but it, it's it's an additional it's additional notch in that in that feather to worry about.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Super interesting. Listen, Justin, really appreciate you taking time to be with us. We know you're working hard up there in New York. Great to get a chance to talk with you about Super Bowl and about football more generally. Really appreciate it.
7: Oh, guys, it's always a pleasure. And also, right. uh, we'll be doing this in person next year. Exactly.
2: We're, we're planning on it. That's Justin Tuck, two-time Super Bowl champ, two-time Pro Bowl defensive end out of Notre Dame, and a Wharton alum. That Absolutely. has been the third quarter here.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
2: On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM rolling into the fourth quarter of our Super Bowl show. Sadly, sadly Zoom, sadly Philadelphia, Austin, the usual locations, not Tampa Bay, especially sad for Eric Bradlow. I was pulling for you, buddy. We um, made
4: it. We made it to the big game, and it's in the first time ever in Tampa Bay, and I can't go. It's, it's, uh, it it's is, the ultimate of irony.
2: It is, it is a little rough. It's a little rough. All right, so we've talked, uh, we've talked COVID-19. We've had a handful of interviews with some of our favorite folks from around the NFL. Now I want to hear from you guys on what you're thinking about with the Super Bowl. Any particular numbers or analyses uh, sticking with you as you're thinking about how Sunday's going to go down?
4: Well, I have a question. I, I have a, it's about analyses for you guys, but I, it's, an, it's a prediction question. Let's say Kansas City wins the Super Bowl, Okay. Does your expected number of Mahomes total Super Bowl wins in his career go up by more than one? <laughs> so it, first, you can see why, let me just say this. You could see just for our listeners, you can see why I'm asking that question. He would be 2-0. and oh. You could obviously in the Super Bowl. You could make an argument that, you know, if there is, I don't call it momentum, it's just that maybe your belief about his Super Bowlness goes up. He certainly gets at least one. He's won one more, so he gets his expectation goes up at least one. But does it go up more?
2: Well, look, I think on the value of this game alone, no. In fact, strong reject on this game alone. If you'd asked me at the start of the season, I think it's a really interesting question. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think the additional game – We put too much on what happens, I think, in these individual games, given how much chance we know um, plays a role.
5: Yeah, I like how Cade framed it there, because, yeah, if you'd asked me at the start of the season, if they repeat as champions, does that kind of affect, by more than one, my kind of, you know, their probability of being a dynasty, et cetera? Because it would, you know, they have shown resilience through the whole season to the kind of, you know, parody inducing effects and just the general difficulty of repeating as champions. And it kind of impressed impressed me in that way. But this game, if anything, I think, you know, actually winning this game, I don't know if it, it I I think it's gonna be it could that much harder to hold that team together the more successful they are to a certain extent. You know. Oh oh
2: you might go the other way. You might, might take, take this way. one game. That's interesting. You're saying you're gonna yeah. update not. I mean it's all. obviously
5: gonna it's gonna update by maybe slightly less than one or something like that. Yeah. So, so I was going difficult. the opposite
4: way. I was saying you would more likely, you know, let's say they get blown out in the game, God mm-hmm. willing. Um, then, <laughs> yeah, I, really. you know, let's be honest. I'm not, I really want to bring God in on my, this one. My, my, my experience God, yes, is I might, Adi. That... I've waited 19 years, but, um, but either I way. a lot
5: about Brady. He doesn't participate in a lot of non-competitive Super Bowls. Well, <laughs> that's yeah. a
4: very, very interesting. That that. Well, look, it's another question you've just brought up is that worth anything that all like the greatest super bowl he's been in the greatest differential as you know Shane very well 13 to 3 against the rams yeah. that's the biggest difference in any super bowl he's ever played in is that worth anything like if i if i give no. you right now no it's not worth anything right nothing
2: Let's <laughs> yeah. we just play this game all thir- all 30 minutes is throw out some ridiculous stat that people are offering this week and say is there any value in this stat no <laughs> no um
5: well I I don't think so necessarily I don't think so I mean I think in, in the case of like you know whether or not it's going to be I mean I I'm really hoping it's not a blowout because I think if it's conditional on being a blowout I think it's more likely to be a KC blowout than it is the other way around um but um I don't think there's anything to it just because I, I think the kind of context of what makes Super Bowls blowout and all that type of stuff like you know is is kind of I don't think there's there's really I, I think it's kind of chance or what it's just randomness that Brady's been in mostly competitive ones.
2: Well, so actually say a little bit more Our about that because there chance. there for a while the Super Bowl had a reputation as being yeah. more prone to blowouts. And there was lots of yeah. theorizing about why that might be the case. Did 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 we were those was that just storytelling back in the day or has something changed? That I mean, I think
5: I mean my my reading and you guys I, get, I have been following it even longer than me. My reading is that there used to be a little bit more of a, an actual real disparity between the two conferences in terms of the you know like like in the ninety late eighties early nineties it seemed like you know the um, the teams that, from the AFC that made it to the Super Bowl were generally getting destroyed and they were kind of you know kind of relatively unambiguously weaker teams in general okay. buff i mean buffalo obviously kind of changed that but you know right um but but you know some of these like you know the i, I mean new the- england
2: chicago new england chicago is a canonical example probably.
5: yes those are those are great examples or you know some of those cincinnati teams or whatever type of thing Yeah. so yeah, yeah. Uh, where so and i think there's kind of a little bit more kind of parity between the conferences now i guess mm. than they used to be that mm-hmm. said i mean you know i mean you could kind of argue the other way around these you know the afc you know, because of the Patriots, because of Manning, because of Roethlisberger has kind of, at least in terms of, there's been a very small number of kind of teams that have come out of the AFC, whereas the NFC has kind of been spread, has been more kind of spreading around across teams more recently. That hasn't, I don't, that's not led to real imbalance in terms of winning like it was back in the eighties and nineties. But.
4: So another numbers related question, you know, Massey Peabody, I'm sure could answer this for us. If the Bucks win the Super Bowl. They will have beaten, according to Massey Peabody, the number one, two, and four teams in the power rankings. Let's forget about the win against the Reds. Sorry, the Washington football team, but they did beat that team. But in the other three games, they'll have beaten the Chiefs, the Packers, and the Saints, which I believe are one, two, and four in the Massey Peabody rankings. Does this make this one of the top, Five Super Bowl wins ever given. You know, it's not just the ranking, of course. It's the strength parameters from the Mass CP, buddy. But where does it where does it come? Is this is would this be like one of these unbelievable Super Bowl runs?
2: I mean, I, I, it doesn't feel that way. I mean, you could this the stats are are strong, but we we need to go back and look. I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to find some other examples who, of teams that have done something like that. I mean, it I doesn't think this, feel like this has been some Titanic. Well, I the think that's were pretty close. What Bucks, weren't they? Frankly, what the Bucks have done this year in the playoffs is more impressive doing it all on the road.
5: Well, I I mean, I think that's the starting point for one of these runs that Eric's describing. If you want to be kind of playing the top teams, you're probably I mean, the starting coming point is you're place. coming in as a wild card or something yeah, like that. That's right. And that's so right. I mean, you know, the starting point for looking back in history is I would look back at, you know, those the 2007 Giants coming that's in as a one. wild card team. I don't know who I I can't remember who else they faced in the NFC um and and what the kind of like what the you know power rankings would those teams would be but i think the starting point for kind of one of these epic runs is you you're coming in as like a less favored like a wild card team and i i i can't remember if 2011 if the giants were the last wild card win, team to win it all i think they're wild card teams there've been well. a
2: number and you know there are more wild cards now than there used to be back in mm-hmm. the day there was one i think the steelers one of the years made it as a wild card would be interesting to see what teams they went through there one more question uh one of these kind of the hypotheticals we're playing with. I'm curious about what you value you put on Brady. Haven't been there so much, so we we tend to, you know, poo poo this stuff. But say, for example, you know, so this year QBR for Aaron Rodgers is pretty close to Tom Brady. It's almost identical. They're both right at eighty. Mm-hmm. So what if and Rodgers has one Super Bowl win versus Brady's umpteen? What differences would you give the Bucks? Different chances would you give the Bucks if it was Rodgers QBing them now instead of Brady? Just on History in the Super Bowl alone.
4: I give my opinion. i give it a higher chance if it was Rodgers. And let me say why. Because I think the probability you're going to get the good Aaron Rodgers is higher than the probability you're going to get the good Tom Brady. But if you tell me you're getting the good Tom Brady... I'd rather have Brady in the game. It's just a lower probability event. And I don't think the mean is that much different between the two. I think the good Aaron Rodgers is damn good. And I'm not even adjusting for age or anything like that, but that's why I put a higher chance if it was
5: Aaron Rodgers. That's
4: mm-hmm. for
2: me. Mm-hmm. Well, Shane, and I think, you're the, you're the longtime Brady guy. You've seen him win a few.
5: Yeah, no. And I mean, I think Eric's got the main effect that Aaron Rodgers is a, 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 you know, probably slightly higher mean and definitely lower variance than Tom Brady kind of game to game. So I think that is the main effect and I can't argue against that. I think the secondary effect, I'm going to argue intangibles of kind of the leadership part of like, there's going to be a lot of people on the Buccaneers that are there for the first time. Without Brady on that team, the Chiefs would have a key advantage is that they so many of those people are repeat champions and have had immediate experience in the Super Bowl to the extent that Brady can kind of communicate or, or kind of show by example how you handle yourself over these kind of couple weeks of buildup I think that's probably helpful to the team I don't think it's mm-hmm. going to swamp the main effect that uh, Eric uh, mentioned though okay uh,
3: what do you make of the of the of the Tampa Bay's season do we just throw out that early part of the season Tom Brady's bad if- bad opening what some I just keeps coming back to me that's why I was much less I may say I'm not a big fan necessarily like you Eric or or, or, but I just always thought that this is so unexpected because that stuff matters
2: I I love the question because it's exactly what I was thinking about when we were talking to Scott Pioli earlier because he talked about the difference this season because of the COVID summer being so different It's going to take a team longer to get together. It's it's the best season for non-stationarity out there. Yeah, more non-stationarity, and it maps back to a conversation we had in the last week or two about discount rates on your power ranking models. And and Rufus and I have explicitly talked about this before. Our discount rate probably should have been steeper this year than an average year because teams were coming together deeper into the season. They played early games, were kind of like preseason games, and so you should be discounting them more heavily a little more on momentum a little more on non-stationarity and that would downweight those early bucks experiences all right guys another two hours of sports analytics here on wharton Moneyball. we do it every week on SiriusXM. xm we'll do it again next week between now and then enjoy the super bowl